Hello listeners and welcome to what is now the fourth season of Pebble in the Pond podcast. We appreciate your support throughout the first three seasons uh, as we get our listenership up towards that 16,000 mark. Uh, thank you everybody, we appreciate it and um, yeah, and what a privilege it is to bring you uh, these stories from amazing people. We are here and we are aiming to create a ripple for change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and and accomplished people in the mental health space. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain content, themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need any assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. In recent years, there's been increasing public, political and media attention around the world to the question of drug law reform. Jurisdictions across the Americas, Europe and the United Kingdom are debating and enacting reforms relating to cannabis and other illicit drugs. In Australia, too, the debate around drug law reform continues. But while some states and territories have decriminalised low-level cannabis offences, there appears to be little political appetite for adopting other models of reform or applying this approach to other illicit drugs. But is decriminalisation an evidence-based approach? Should we decriminalise other drugs before cannabis? Here to explore answers is this week's podcast guest, John Ryan. John is a leader in public health whose expertise is widely recognised in Victoria and overseas. He is currently a member of the North, North Richmond Medically Supervised Injecting Room Review Panel and in 2012 won a Churchill Fellowship to travel to the United States and study ways of improving public health approaches to drug policy. As a former needle and syringe program worker, university researcher and policymaker, John is deeply committed to promoting better approaches to substance use and leading Pennington Institute's work to create change for the better. Stay tuned as John explores the challenges and opportunities surrounding the decriminalisation of drugs in Australia and delves into the question, is decriminalisation an effective way to address problematic drug use? John Ryan, thanks so much for your time and for sharing your story and journey with our listeners. I appreciate it. Thank you, Sam. John, do you want to give us a bit of background of you professionally? If you just want to give our listeners a bit of runway as to what your professional history has been and how you got how you got to in the position where you are today as CEO of the Pennington Institute. Well, there's uh, there's many forks in the road, isn't there? And sometimes you go down the right fork and the wrong fork. And I've been down a few forks. One of which was becoming a needle exchange worker back in the late nineties during the heroin flood. I'd been overseas doing some other things and I had a friend that was running a needle exchange and so I got the opportunity to work there. That really blew me away in terms of the predicament that some people were surviving in, talking about people that were street-based sex workers, heroin 
dependent, injecting drug users. It was a very dire sort of environment, lots of violence within that community, lots of violence outside of that community. It was a real epiphany for me in terms of who in our community is the real underclass. And my observation, the real forgotten people were those people that were in St Kilda actually at that time, living right on the edge in what was only, only could be described as a jungle basically. For listeners who don't know what a needle exchange is, do you just want to give us a bit of Yeah, so a needle exchange was, well actually they were introduced in the 80s to try and prevent HIV, HIV AIDS. If you remember back to the 80s there was this massive anxiety that HIV was going to spread right throughout the entire community and the two biggest sort of population groups in Australia at that time that were at risk were men who have sex with men uh, and people who inject drugs. And so they introduced needle exchange to distribute sterile injecting equipment to prevent HIV. And it was introduced with bipartisan support. Such was the fear of basically a sort of HIV tsunami across Australia. Very successful, very financially successful in terms of return on investment for government money, but also successful in the sense of showing that people who use drugs do care about their health. They adopted needle exchange very quickly. They wanted to protect their health. You know, some people are so desperate in their circumstances that they don't actually think about next week or next year, let alone something as sort of distant or whatever. You know, they're very focused on the 24-7, but actually... Needle exchange proved that people do uh, care about their health and they care about the health of, care about the people in their community's health as well. And so, you know, there's about a thousand of them around Australia, mostly delivered through community health centres and regional and rural hospitals. They provide injecting equipment. The one that I worked in was a special one because it was in a really full on uh, drug market. And that, that's what we were seeing in a few places uh, in Australia in the 90s. Most needle and syringe programs operate in sort of you know suburbia and country towns no one ever notices St Kilda where I was was very different to that it was a full-on drug scene but what it really taught me was that there was a much bigger issue to address which was the social catastrophe of our drug war and you know I was watching literally probably 150 people a day coming into that service all in different states of extreme vulnerability it struck me that it was much better to try and work at a systems level. So I jumped out of that after about nine months, mm. partly because it was really taxing work. It's really exhausting doing that sort of frontline work. I shifted into working in research in relation to HIV and then working for a government policy, a government-appointed policy group. And uh, to be honest, you know, my conclusion was I really didn't want to work in government because I was, I'm too impatient and I'm probably not compromising enough. And so I jumped into the NGO sector and for the last 20 odd years I've been working in the not-for-profit sector dealing with drug use issues at a policy level and still trying to support frontline workers with workforce development, etc. But mostly interested in trying to improve community uh, resilience in relation to drug use issues. And how have we seen, during your time, how have we seen that, I mean, from heroin in the 80s, how have we seen the use of drugs play out in Australia? Have you seen that just different drugs are being used or are we seeing just more drugs are being used more often? What, what, are, you, what are your thoughts? I think it goes back even before the 80s. We've, we've, got sort of, we've got a real mess in Australia with drugs. So, you know, cannabis has been popular for a very long time. Alcohol has obviously been popular since 
the first fleet. What's interesting, I think, is that the illicit drug market keeps changing in terms of the patterns of use and in terms of the people that are using. Some things are constant. So we've still got a heroin population. They used to be 18 and 22 years old back in the day. A lot of a lot of them have aged. You know, the ones that are still alive have got older and older. The next generation, often what happens is the uh, the next generation looks at the older generation and thinks, you know, you're a bunch of idiots, I'm going to do something different. And so we've had a massive increase in methamphetamine use, particularly in the last 15 years. That's something that's happened internationally as well. So we've still got the old heroin users. We've now got a whole bunch of methamphetamine users. And of course, there's still an interest in MDMA and sort of party drugs and that market changes as well. I think what's really indicative of the of our culture is that we people still want to get intoxicated and so they get intoxicated on other on other things and i've heard recently something that i find very disturbing which is the next generation so the people that are 18 to 21 now in some parts of sydney and some parts of melbourne are looking to heroin because they've seen the methamphetamine generation you know the ones that are a bit older than them late 20s and 30s they think they're idiots of course as all as we all do to the next generation and so they're getting into heroin. So it's going pardon back. me, this cycle. It could cycle back. I mean, thank God or thank whatever uh, random chance uh, we've not had a fentanyl flood in Australia, which we've seen in North America. But we've still got a continuing population of people who want to use drugs, and they use lots of different drugs to get uh, smashed, including, let's be honest, alcohol, which continues to be the most prevalent drug and causes a huge amount of damage. Tobacco's in there, and of course, pharmaceutical drugs have been a problem since about the turn of the century and so you can see that even medically prescribed substances can cause problems in the community so yes in answer to your question i think it's fair to say that the drug market continues to evolve and the drugs involved continue to expand the culture of intoxication australia seems to have that ingrained in the culture as far as whether it's alcohol whether it's cannabis or other other drugs Tell us about, do you think it's a cultural shift that's required or do you think it's more of a a law thing as far as trying to improve outcomes for people that are suffering from overuse of these types of drugs? Well, you know, I don't don't think it's just Australia that's got a desire to be to use mind-altering substances. It goes back, in my view, to right to the beginning of humankind. In fact, you know, leading up to this conference, I was looking on YouTube for some, you know, in, instead of preparing my talk, I went on a tangent, as you do on the internet, and ended up looking at animals being intoxicated, like choosing to be intoxicated. And so I don't even think it's a necessarily a human thing. Like there was, there's amazing footage on YouTube of elephants getting drunk and, and wanting to get drunk. So I think that idea of altering your consciousness, whether it's through extreme sports or gaming or yeah. uh, shopping or whatever like it's it's all actually very embedded in our sort of desire to self-stimulate sex for that matter is another example that's perfectly healthy in some circumstances and certainly goes back to the beginning the tricky thing is how do we manage those issues and to my mind the australian approach has been pretty unsuccessful in terms of managing drug use problems pretty unsuccessful because uh, we've invested a lot of effort saying no to drugs in trying to interdict them, in trying to prevent them from coming across the oceans uh, to Australia. All of those things have pretty much failed. And what we've done in, as a consequence of investing most of our energy in that supply control is that we've ignored, neglected 
and failed to support the community to actually better manage substance use. And so, in my view, you know, most it's not my view actually. I mean, the the evidence is that most people who use substances don't become dependent. So. One of our challenges is how do we slow down or reduce the number of people who use drugs? But the bigger challenge is how do we prevent people from actually becoming dependent? And that's about partly about improving our health literacy or our drug literacy. So if you're someone with anxiety and dep- as part of your sort of makeup, be extremely cautious because your risk of addiction with methamphetamines is extremely high. But we don't have that sort of conversation because we've got public discourse, which is really just say no. And that's N-O, not K-N-O-W. As we look to other countries, other countries have tried to attack the war on drugs in other in various ways, whether it's through policy and law reform or other means. Tell us, what can we learn from the international examples about drug drug use and dependency on drugs? Well, you know, what's really fascinating is some of our sort of sister countries, you know, the USA especially, I think, went really hard on its drug war, even harder than the Australian drug war, and it ended up costing them a fortune. In fact, one of the reasons that they've they've started to cycle back away from that is because it was sending state governments broke because they were incarcerating so many people. People were being incarcerated for extremely long sentences for very minor drug-related crimes, that sort of three strikes and you're out catastrophe. So, you know, the swing of the pendulum is the Americans have now sort of flipped from that kind of militaristic approach and zero-tolerance approach, and now they're they're leaders in the world in relation to cannabis law reform, which I think is ex- extraordinary. And to be honest, I would never have thought that 20 years ago. Like, I would never have guessed that America would be a leader in uh, drug law reform because it was such a stickler for the war on drugs. And, uh, I mean, I, I guess it shows how bad I am at predicting things. But B, it shows how, as a community, we take a while to learn uh, from our errors and to improve our way of doing things. And no better place to learn than in something as extreme as the American situation. So it's a very mixed picture, I think, in America. It's a very mixed picture internationally. But the EU is a similarly Western democratic style of government to Australia. And they've definitely started to shift away uh, from that sort of drug war approach. They've got a very strong public health approach to uh, drug policy. And I think that gives us... Uh, it certainly gives me some level of optimism that Australia might change tack because really at the moment we've got a very draconian approach and if we look at, you know, from a systems level, if you look at what a free society and a democracy should be about, you know, we've got the war in Ukraine at the moment proving how fragile freedom is. Some of the biggest supporters of the drug war are actually countries with authoritarian regimes. So China, Russia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, they're the sort of countries that line up on, used to line up with America, anti-harm reduction. They're still anti-harm reduction, but America's shifted. And I think from a democratic country perspective, we've got to actually be much more strongly focused on personal uh, freedom and particularly freedom from a draconian or authoritarian government style and that's what we've had in uh, Australia which is why you often see ministers fronting up police in uniform with a drug bust you know it's a very 
propaganda-style piece of media. You see the AFP with the minister. It always it always disappoints me, to, to be honest, that the media um, buys that trope because even though the police do every once in a while do a, a big drug bust succeed in uh, disrupting some importation, uh, the fact is that drugs are readily available in Australia and those disruptions to supply absolutely nothing other than media opportunities because there's a whole lot of other middle-ranked drug dealers that are or drug traffickers that are ready to step up if the big bananas are taken out. And that, you know, like technically I think they call that the replacement effect, but basically what we're doing with, the, with our sort of border control approach is generating more drug traffickers because you take one out and you get a new one, the old one returns to the community sooner or later, you've now got two, you used to have one. That's the inevitable approach and I think heartening is that there are lots of countries that are starting to move away from that mentality. Canada's... Uh, very similar to Australia in many ways. Uh, they've legalised cannabis right across the country. They've moved on decriminalisation and they're talking about safe supply to try and protect lives. Like Australia's uh, an island and quite isolated in relation to drug policy changes. I think we're uh, probably a bit behind the eight ball. Mm. It's interesting that you make that uh, connection to Canada and, and the US, uh, certainly, as you mentioned, leading the way in some respects with regards to the law reforms that they've introduced over there how effective i mean do you have stats as to how effective or ineffective i should say the drug laws are here in australia i mean what's it costing us do you know any of that sort of stuff off the top of your head well i think you know i mean the worst statistic to my mind is the comparison between the overdose toll the annual overdose toll and the annual road toll in australia and the overdose toll has continued to exceed the road toll now for many years and if you ask the average person in the street what would be what more people would die from the road toll or the overdose, my experience is that most people guess the road toll. That's just a sign of how little value I think we put on the lives of people lost to overdose. I think that's a national tragedy that doesn't get the political attention that it deserves. You know, we spend about two thirds of our government drug policy money on law enforcement. The rest of it's mostly about prevention and uh, drug treatment and then about 2 or 3% for harm reduction. So for building community capacity to uh, manage drug use issues as they continue. That's, that's the big gap to my mind. So, you know, we want to stop people from using tried supply control. It's impossibly difficult, impossibly, you know, uh, against the law of nature, which is, you know, there's about 15 tonnes of drugs consumed in Australia per year, according to the Australian Criminal Intelligence Commission, and more than, I think it's 100, more than 100 million tonnes of imports. So uh, they'll never... They'll never catch the, all of the drug supply opportunists or entrepreneurs. But the real, the real challenge is what do you do with people who do find access to drugs, which is just pretty much everyone that wants to find drugs can find them. Between using the drug and ending up in drug treatment, which some people uh, end up in, what do we do as a community for the vast majority of people who use drugs uh, intermittently not dependent, not addicted to them, well, we allocate less than 2% of the budget to that uh, large proportion of the population. So we're basically, you know, we're designing a system to fail the community because we're investing all of our money in a fantasy that we can do supply control, even though the evidence is extremely convincing that supply control will never achieve uh, a healthy and safe community. 
and the the effect of too many overdoses from drugs the opportunity is there the opportunity to decriminalize drugs would assist in reducing that amount if we had a controlled environment for that do you think well, I think the, I mean, the interesting thing, decriminalisation to my mind, is that it might create an opportunity to have an honest conversation about drugs because, you know, I, I find it difficult to say in public that cannabis is much less dangerous than methamphetamine. And if I was to advise an 18 year old on drug consumption, I would say beware, methamphetamine extremely dangerous. I'd, I'd rather just say no, not just say no to methamphetamine. But MDMA or cocaine is much less dangerous than methamphetamine. And of course, cannabis is by multiple, you know, by an extraordinary amount less dangerous MDMA or methamphetamine. The, the, Chair of the UK government's drug advisory body made the point that MDMA was less dangerous than horse riding, I think it was, which was statistically accurate because horse riding, I think it was horse riding or duck hunting or something (laughs) like that. But he had the statistics and the statistics backed him up. So it was an evidence-based argument, but he told the truth and he got the sack. Wow. Is that right? Yeah, I think there's a there's a part of the draconian nature of our drug war is that there's a lack of honest conversations in the community about drug use issues, which is why I'm so happy to be having this conversation with you. But at a broader level, you know, some of it's about fear, fear from parents, fear from or created by media, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What whatever the source is, the fact is that we don't have a savvy community in relation to drug use issues. I can remember 20 years ago talking to particularly Indian taxi drivers, Pakistani taxi drivers, sort of random people that you meet, talking about, you know, they'd ask me, what what do I do? They'd typically, you know, bless their hearts, they'd attack me for what I was doing, saying that, you know, I was sending the wrong message and that there's a problem with Western culture and that, you know, it's family breakdown, that's why drug use happens, et cetera, et cetera. Fast forward 20 years and I meet the same kind of people and they have a very different attitude these days and they have a very different attitude because back in Pakistan and Punjab and you know different parts of India they've also now got massive drug problems and they've come to re- and not only it's not only affecting the poorest people but it's affecting people in from middle class backgrounds as well and so there's this sort of globalization of uh, drug problems and in my experience globalization of community members who acknowledge that it's a very difficult issue with no simple solution. The community is actually well ahead, I think, of the political class when it comes to drug use issues. You know, in drug policy issues, I think the politicians lead from behind. The community is much more interested in having a compassionate approach to drug use issues and an honest approach to protect their families and their friends and their neighbours. I don't think we've got to that with our investment in in sort of a policing first approach. Number one, how do we have the honest conversations? And number two, how do we get the the policies and reforms to catch up to what works rather than what they've always done? You know, the funny thing is I left left working in government because I was really impatient and I thought I could get quicker wins working in the non-government sector, the not-for-profit sector. And what I've learned is that I need to develop patience because these things are so entrenched and so slow-moving. 
I actually think every once in a while you get a leader that will take a massive risk. A, a massive risk and actually show true leadership. And I think that's something, you know, we hear a lot about leadership these days. I don't think we've seen much leadership in relation to drug use issues. Bob Hawke showed leadership. He was personally affected. His daughter had heroin dependence issues. So he had a real investment in and a real uh, intimate understanding of it. And I wouldn't want to think that we need politicians whose you know children have suffered suffered exactly they should just check the evidence but i think you know trudeau in canada led the cannabis reforms and and his mother was actually uh, my understanding is his mother was arrested for cannabis possession so he also had actually um, real personal experience you know i think uh, there'll be tipping points every once in a while uh, a whole range of innovative responses will come about and i don't know what the secret source is to generating that i think the important thing is to have the evidence front and foremost of any uh, conversation and that's what we're trying to do at pennington institute and i think sooner or later there'll be a trigger for significant reform because really the community has moved well past the old drug war rhetoric but the system is stuck so tell us on that note then on what pennington institute is and what you're undertaking so pennington institute is basically interested in uh, improving community safety and health in relation to drugs including alcohol and pharmaceuticals emphasis is on evidence-based approaches and you know that's easier said than done because uh, the evidence is not always uh, clear in this space and which is why I, I think it's really core to us that we sort of combine that lived experience expertise with uh, research expertise i think that's the magic combination to develop sensible uh, approaches and so we've been that's that's our determination and to do that through policy or community education or indeed frontline worker education is how we go about it but the fundamental principle is, I think, uh, ultimately about uh, human dignity and the fact that we should be able to create a society where we have the chance to excel and not be held back by unnecessary, you know, unnecessary, you know, not have the shackles of stupid government policy. Do we look at these, I mean, is there evidence from overseas models that is already there that we can use to help strengthen the debate about it all i mean or is it stuff that you know you're only looking within australia for well i I actually i'm born in australia and terribly patriotic so my my sort of view is that we should come up with an australian approach i think we did that in many ways in uh, different areas you know i think we were the first to require seat belts so i think were we the first to, to have the eight-hour work day? Were we? I don't, I'm not sure. I think we might have been, if not New Zealand, because apparently they invented the pavlova, but I think we took the credit <laughs> for it. So. Uh, but one of the things, you know, one of the things that's f- special and fantastic, I think, about Australia is our public health system, our Medicare system. But there's a lot of things to be really proud of in Australia. I don't, I'm not particularly proud of our drug policy system. And so I think, you know, ultimately we need to develop our approach in Australia. But... There are big lessons to learn from overseas and one of them is, you know, one of the famous ones is Portugal, which has decriminalised drugs probably, what, 20, 22 years ago. You know, it's a small country. It's on the edge of, you know, the southwest edge of Europe. So it sort of got away with it. Back in those days, America would often prevent Western countries from taking progressive approaches to drug use issues. I think Portugal was so sort of on the periphery that no one really bothered to 
stop them. Plus, they had the support of leading Catholic. You know, it's a Catholic country, but leading Catholic identities in the in Portuguese society, and they really shifted towards decriminalisation. But they invested heavily in needle exchange and uh, methadone pharmacotherapy. They had a massive heroin problem in the nineties, and they jumped on it with expanded access to services and a different sort of government approach, shifting away from a really draconian law enforcement centric approach so i think you know it's not perfect portugal but it's an interesting it's an interesting case study in a country that's actually developed its own model independently and i think you know one of the others that's particularly interesting i think and and complex is the netherlands you know they've got a very sort of nuanced approach and so has iceland got an interesting approach in terms of prevention the french have got a great approach in terms of opioid substitution treatment and providing you know low threshold access to healthcare for people who are dependent so there's lots of and you know the swiss are um, prescribing heroin they've got injecting rooms so there's lots of examples of successful initiatives around the world that we could be borrowing from copy it you know exactly because we've got to create something that's um, fit for purpose for australia but there's certainly not a lack of examples of sensible approaches internationally that could be tailored for the australian setting it's interesting, and like you mentioned earlier, each country is approaching it differently, aren't they, in some respects, in the way they're introducing some of these things? Well, you know, I mean, I went to Russia a few years ago and I was talking to a doctor in the grounds of a hospital who was telling me about the precarious position of methadone in Russia and he thought that it should be better supported. And uh, he said to me, you know... Lucky we're having this conversation on the hospital grounds because if I had this conversation at the bus stop or in public, I would be arrested. So we've got great examples from overseas and absolutely dire examples from overseas as well. And to my mind, the dire examples fail the test of what a democracy should be about. And ultimately, you know, we're talking about Australia as a free country where you'd think that we'd have an opportunity to innovate not you know reviewing medically supervised injecting room uh, in melbourne for the victorian government and the, you know there's one in sydney there's one in melbourne what a pathetic track record of innovation that we've got two such services in australia whether the melbourne one is actually fit for purpose or any good is a really open question because that's that's the purpose of the review but it just strikes me that after a heroin flood from, like you say, the late 80s, we've ended up with two consumption rooms in the whole of the country. It's a very... Archaic. Uh, yeah. It? <laughs> it's like, pretty stale and stuck. Does it surprise you? Or do you think we need... Is the answer getting bold leaders that, uh, that can do something where it matters, which is in the power of the politics? Well, I think what's... I think it's the politics and the... The interesting thing in my experience is that there's lots of politicians that retire and say sensible things once they're retired and, <laughs> and express regret at what they did when they're, you know, in their jobs. And I've had that conversation with politicians as well, which is that they're much more in sync with where the community's at, but they're too fragile in their position to express that and they don't step up. It's a leadership opportunity. Leadership's a risky thing to undertake and they don't, they don't take that leadership opportunity. I think that's, that's, you know, from my perspective, that's very frustrating and I've seen that time and again and I have private conversations with politicians who are very much in sync with where the community's at 
have a health-first approach to drug use problems, but they won't say that uh, publicly. They might say it once they're retired. Mm-hmm. And I think, the, you know, the other part of the equation is the police and how many police are actually not supportive, but they're very politically conservative and fall into line with the government position. But in private, they're actually very cynical about the potential of the current approach. So, you know, then I, I think the, the other big player in this is the media and how the media sort of wind up uh, community anxiety around innovations in uh, drug policy. So, you know, drug testing or drug checking, it's really pretty minimal. Like we know people are using drugs already. Why wouldn't we provide them with an opportunity to test it so that they can potentially not use that drug? I mean, to me, the logic is very simple. It doesn't create more people who use drugs because there's so many people using already. What it does is save their life potentially and yet drug checking is very controversial as you look john as you look to the future what exciting things do you have coming up uh, that you can share with us what's what's looking at so what well what we keep aiming for is a sensible approach to drug use issues and i'm actually very optimistic that we'll get there and i'm optimistic mostly because of the people that i talk to in the community that are touched by drug use either you know intimately personally or just in their broader social network I think the community has really learned a lot about drugs in the last 50 years and what they've learned hasn't filtered up to the political decision makers yet, but I'm very optimistic that it will. And so, you know, one of the things that we do annually is International Overdose Awareness Day and, you know, whilst the overdose toll in Australia exceeds the road toll, in the United States I think the last time they reported it was about 108,000 people for the year had died. So if you add that 108,000 to the previous year where it was another 100,000, we're talking actually about millions of families affected. So I'm very optimistic that International Overdose Awareness Day, which is a key initiative of ours, will provide an opportunity to generate Uh, conversation and change for the better but you know ultimately I'm very optimistic that we will have change for the better it's and that's because families actually care about these issues more than more than a headline it's it's well said and and John if people want to get in touch with you how can they do that google Pennington Institute that'd be the the easiest way yeah pennington.org.au um, we're there on all the social media etc but I think the easiest thing is pennington.org.au no double n Got you. Well, John, uh, I appreciate your time. Thanks very much for coming and talking to us about that and the uh, amazing things you're up to and the insights that you're getting. Fingers crossed that change can is not too far around the corner and the great work that you're doing with the research and what have you is going to make some inroads shortly and get some outcomes. Thank you, Sam. It was great to talk to you. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.